Good morning. Happy Easter to all of you watching online as well. Great to be with you here to celebrate this Easter Sunday. And before I get to my Easter sermon, I want to say, uh, first of all, how Alyssa just mentioned this, how great it is to see uh, some of you uh, that I haven't seen in a while, not just because of Easter, but of course, <clears throat> the world we've lived in for the last years. Great to see you this morning at uh, my time with the Lord. He said, Rob, I, uh, a couple things uh, I want you to know. Um, I want you to tell uh, the people that you see today. Number one, that I love them. Uh, I want you to tell them that I love them. And also, I want you to tell them that it's great to see them in church and you want them back here next Sunday as we begin. <clears throat> anyway, it's really great to, to see all of you. It is, as Alyssa said, what a great, there's no greater feeling for me anyway to be in, in this sanctuary um, with people who have open hearts, minds, just to celebrate the resurrection, which is what we're going to do this morning. I want to begin my uh, sermon, so to speak, with an email that I received just about a week ago uh, from someone here at the church. Dear Pastor Rob, <clears throat> last year at Easter, someone at church said to me that if Jesus had not been resurrected, there was no point to Christianity. <clears throat> Our faith was pointless. I was shocked. I have been mulling this over for a year, and I'm still having trouble understanding why the resurrection is so important. I believe that Christ was resurrected and that believers will also be resurrected. But I've been turning this over in my mind, this comment, for a year and seem not to be able to get clarity. Can you help? I'm so glad you asked. For, um, so I'm going to try to do my best. Uh, and we're going to do that from John chapter 20, if you have a copy of the Bible uh, on your phone or in, the lap, <clears throat> in your lap. We're going to look at John chapter 20, as we think about this great question, the point of the resurrection, in a message titled, The Meaning of the Empty Tomb. The Meaning of the Empty Tomb. Follow along as I read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple, we find through other places, this is John, being, you know, not, not giving reference to himself, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. In all four Gospels, including this one, the story of the resurrection, the account of the resurrection begins with these words, it's the first day of the week, being Sunday, okay? But this is more, I would suggest to you, than uh, you know, accurate reporting. I assume it's accurate. But it's really talking about, it marks the beginning of something new. 
I think that's why the writers are doing this. They want you to know, yes, it's the first day of the week, but it marks the beginning of something new. The empty tomb, our subject this morning, is mentioned, and I, I kind of read these quickly, but in these 10 verses, it's mentioned six times. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6 through 8, right? There's a point there. The the empty tomb, the the fact that the tomb was empty, the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, why we're here this morning, is not simply a spectacular miracle, which it is. We would all agree, I I imagine. It's not simply a spectacular miracle in the old world, but it's the starting point of a new world. Okay, this is what the Bible says. It's the starting point of a new world. In the grand story of the scriptures, it is the end of the world as we know it. This is what the Bible teaches. The empty tomb is the end of the world as we know it. If you were here Good Friday, if you're familiar with this whole concept of the gospel, we do this together. The gospel is the death and resurrection. They go together. But here's what we emphasize. Here's what we, we sort of pointed out. You might say, um, in, in a sense, um, celebrated in a manner of speaking. On Good Friday, what is the great truth that the cross tells us? In the cross, death was defeated. The power of death was defeated. The power of sin was defeated. And it's then that the resurrection follows. The resurrection of Jesus Christ follows not simply the death of one man, but the death of death. The power of death, the Bible says, was was, was, came to an end at the cross. The power of sin came at the cross and the resurrection followed. And because of it, through it, Jesus not simply ushers in a new ethic, right? a new body of teaching, right? You know, like we're gonna learn some new things, but a whole new creation. This is what the Bible says anyway. It's a whole new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, now what does that mean? This is the Apostle Paul. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means, it's it's used many, many times, hundreds of times in the New Testament. And it's speaking of the reality of anybody who has appropriated, who has believed, who who has taken the work of Christ, his death and resurrection, and has believed in them and, and, and become in union with them. In belief, I have appropriated, I've, I've benefited from, I've chosen to do that, you have to believe, I've, I've benefited from that, I am therefore in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ, for anyone that's in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. That was written 2,000 years ago. Becoming a Christian, my point, is much more than adopting new beliefs than adopting practices it's about entering a new kingdom it's about growing in new loves it's about submitting to new values it's a radical that's what the bible teaches ask yourself where you are today as i do it's a radical regeneration of the heart somebody's become a christian it's a radical reorientation of your life to become a christian means that the same divine power that shook the mountains, if you know the story of Exodus, that calmed the storm, if you know the Gospels story, that same power is in contact with your life today. Listen, if you're open to it, if you're open to it, for a believer, the resurrection makes available to you 
available to me a power to live a whole new kind of quality of life. It's not a guarantee, right? I'm sure many of those of you who've been in the church for a while, you'd say, well, gee, my friends or these neighbors, th- these Christians, they seem to have a real joy. It doesn't seem to be fake. It's genuine. It's real. They seem to be kind of selfless. There's something about their life. There's a power, but I don't see it in my life or in his life or in her life. The resurrection makes available to you a power to live a whole quality of life if you're open to it. But it's an old life, it's, it's a new life, I should say, that is still lived out in the old world. This is the beauty and the miracle uh, in, in the irony of what we're talking about right here. We still live in a world, the old world, a broken world, full of, full of difficulty, through, through of pain, through of suffering, through of all kinds of injustices. We still live in the old world, but the power of the resurrection allows you and me to draw on a power, an inner motivation to live in the old world, but through the power of the new world at the same time, okay, at the same time. Many of you know, some of you don't, the name Scotty Scheffler. Now, Scotty Scheffler um, is a 25-year-old golfer um, being who is just beginning his, just less than two months ago, began his third full year in the PGA, the Professional Golf Association. And at that time, two months ago, he was ranked 15th in the world, not bad. But since then, he saw his first, or before that, he'd not had a, a single victory at the, at the top circuit, okay? But he was 15th in the world. But as of March 27th, a couple of weeks ago, He won three of five events, and he shot up to number one in the world. As of last Sunday, 10th of April, he's now the Masters champion, which you say, what's that if you're not into golf? It's the Super Bowl of golf, okay, the Masters champion. In a press conference last Sunday, Scheffler was asked how he balances his desire to compete, which is fierce, without letting it define who he is as a person. Quote, my identity isn't a golf score. I'm trying to glorify God, and that's why I'm here, and that's why I'm in this position. But truth told, friends, I cried like a baby this morning, he said in the press conference. I was so stressed out, I didn't know what to do. I was sitting there telling Meredith, his wife, I don't think I'm ready for this. I'm not ready. I don't feel like I'm ready for this kind of stuff. And I just felt overwhelmed. She told me, who are you to say you aren't ready? Who am I to say that I know what's best for my life, he said. And so what we talked about is that God is in control and that the Lord is leading me. And if today is my time, it's my time. And if I shoot an 82 today, by the way, that's not a great score for a professional golfer. If I shoot an 80, it'd be a phenomenal score for me. If I, shoot it, if I shoot an 82 today, you know somehow I was going to use it for his glory. Okay, I was going to use it for his glory. Listen, Scotty Scheffler didn't say those things because he's running for office. Okay, he's not a politician. He's a golfer. He didn't need to talk about his faith. But he said it because he's connected to a truth, a reality beyond this world. I could use him as an example. He's in the news for one reason, because he won the Super Bowl of golf last Sunday. 
but the world is full of people hidden in plain sight that shop where you shop, that work where you work, whose values and hopes are anchored in the new world that was inaugurated when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If you have eyes to see it, when Jesus Christ rose 2,000 years ago, it was the end of the world as we know it. Second thing this passage tells us, the law of the new world, this new world that was inaugurated on the day Jesus rose from the dead, the law of the new world, listen very carefully, is grace. And it's funny, when I was thinking about this sermon this week, I thought, I don't even know if people really even know what grace is because we live in a world where grace is so counterintuitive, so unlike what we experience, unmerited favor, right? God just does it. Now, you don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You don't show off for it. You don't show how good you are, how moral you are, how wonderful you are. Grace is God's love given to you, given to me, given to anyone just because God wants to do it. It's an undeserved kind of love. I don't think we know what that is. But here's the interesting thing. It's not just this small little thing. The law of the new world that was inaugurated inside the old world is grace. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read them like we read this one, guess who the first people to the tomb are? In every case, it's women. Okay, It's women. And prominent among those women, including here, John 20, is a woman named Mary Magdalene. Now, the, the male disciples eventually get there, as John and Peter do, okay? But in all four, the gospel writers make a point to say that Mary Magdalene was the first person to witness the resurrection. Let me say this. This, too, is more than accurate reporting. I believe it's accurate reporting. That's my conviction. But it's more than that. The writers, listen very carefully, are making a theological point that is absolutely central to the gospel message. What is that theological point? Right out of the mouth of Jesus. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The first shall be last. Jesus said this many times. One of these things that you, Jesus says, and you don't really know what he's talking about, like it's a riddle, until you do. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Rob, what does that mean? It means this. Listen very carefully. The privileged, the prestigious, the powerful in this life make up the back of the line in the kingdom of God. Now, why? Not because God loves them less. He loves all people the same. Because they feel they have no need for God or his grace. That's why. If you're a non-Christian who's never experienced the forgiveness of Christ, look no further than the mirror. And if you're a Christian, like me, like many of us, but you've not experienced the power of the resurrection at greater, greater depths of your life, look no further than this issue. Because people feel they have no need for God and His grace. Listen, the Bible is the story of the boys nobody wanted, of the women nobody wanted, of the people nobody wanted. You say, what do you mean? The Bible is the story of the boys nobody wanted, 
of the women nobody wanted, the people nobody wanted. I don't know if you've heard this, uh, but maybe this will be helpful when you read the Bible. Much of the Bible is written in narratives, right? The book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, all the histories in the Gospels. They're telling stories about people living in what I'll call the old world, the world as we know it. When you read the Bible, you've got to be very careful and read the Bible and realize that the Bible, in many, many cases, is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, many people say to me, when a pastor, I talk to him and say, listen, I believe in God, but the world's a mess. There's so much violence. Women are treated such and such a way. There's slavery in the Bible and on and on. How possibly you, could you try to tell me that the God who wrote this is the, is, is the true God of love? Well, because the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive. God sent his son into the world on a rescue mission into the old world, into a world that's organized not around the way God wants to organize things, the way that man does. When the first shall be first and the last shall be last. You know, the Jews, one of the reasons the Jewish people rejected Jesus and as a whole, not every last Jewish person, but as a, na- as a nation, they believed in the resurrection because the, they, they were good students of the Old Testament, some of them. But this is what they believed. They believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was, or the resurrection of people would happen at the end of time. After the whole story's all over, all this mess is cleaned up, all the death, all the abuse, all of the pollution, all of the crime, it's over, new world, resurrection. But God said, I got a different idea. I'm gonna bring the resurrection not at the end of time, I'm gonna bring it in the middle of time. It's the end of the, the old world, the new world begins while the old world is still here. That's what they missed. That's what they didn't understand. The privileged are at the back of the line, right? The the, the boys that nobody wanted, what do I mean by that? The Old Testament history, the whole story of, and really the whole, in the New Testament too, here was the world of of the Bible. The oldest son always got the majority of the the inheritance. Whether that oldest son was good looking, was smart, did good on his SATs, was, it didn't matter. He could be the opposite of all of those. He could be a, a, a good for nothing, self-centered person. He still got all the blessings of the father, the firstborn son. It's the world as we know it. But God decided he was gonna choose the younger. He chose Abel, not Cain, for his purposes. He chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Joseph, not his older brothers. He chose David, not his seven older brothers. Listen, guys, there's a point there. The law of the new world is grace. How about the women that nobody wanted? The first chapter in your New Testament, and many of you skip over it and and, and think it's just unimportant because it's a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus, and you see 42 generations from, from Abraham all the way to um, Joseph, the, the stepfather of Jesus. Typical of first, of, of first generation Palestine, all the names in those 42 uh, generations are men, the father of, the father of, the father of. They name the fathers. But for some reason, four of the people named in the genealogy of Jesus are women. That's unusual. That doesn't make sense. That's not characteristic of genealogies in the first century. But then who are the women that are named? One of them is, a, is from a despised people group. She's a Moabite, the arch enemies of Israel. But she's in the genealogy of Jesus, the great-grandmother of David. Two of them are prostitutes, okay? Uh, 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 Tamar and Rahab. And one of them is a rape victim. 
Those are the women that are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What's the point? The Bible is the story of the boys nobody wanted, the women nobody wanted. Listen, it's the story of the people nobody wanted. We have, we, you know, we say this in a kind of a cultural joke, you know, the Jewish people, you know, and there's all this anti-Semitism in around this. They're the chosen people, and they are. But here's the irony of that. If you, where did that come from? Deuteronomy 7. When God came into this broken world, the old world, to start a new one, he says, I'm going to choose Abraham, I'm going to choose Israel, but they're not the biggest nation, they're not the smartest nation, they're not the good, best-looking nation. In fact, they are the fewest of all people. Anyone that was trying to start some movement, they would be the last on the list, but I'm choosing them. Why? Because I want to show the world for only one reason, that I love them. Because the law of the new world is grace. The, the story of the Bible is the boys that nobody wanted, the women nobody wanted, the people nobody wanted. And that's why, friends, Mary Magdalene, a demon-possessed woman, maybe a prostitute, who knows, but a demon-possessed woman who couldn't be lower on the socioeconomic scale, that's why Mary Magdalene was the first person forever and ever to be associated with the resurrection of Jesus. Do you get it? Okay, do you get it? The law of the new world is grace. One of the major reasons many people reject the gospel, maybe in this room, maybe listening to me today, and one of the many reasons that Christians like me and some of you reject a greater work of the gospel is because the message of the gospel does not appeal to your pride. That's the problem. Because in God's kingdom... The last shall be first. It does not appeal to your pride. Our instinct is to take credit for any success we have in life. We believe, some of us, all of us maybe at times, that our achievements, the achievements we have that brought us to, to where we are in life, are, we've done this all on our own. But the message of the gospel begins with the idea that you are a sinner. Everything you've been given in life, you've been given by God, and you are saved if you are only by sheer grace that requires not merit. Don't give me your scorecard. It requires humility. Humility. And the same goes for a Christian who wants to have a greater experience of the resurrection. Humility. The last shall be first because they're smart enough to get out of their own way. That's what Jesus said. The disciples were all, and the people listening to Jesus were, were talking about all, the, all the, you know, the, 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 the benefits of being Jewish. And Jesus said, listen, let me tell you what the end of time is going to be like. They're going to come to sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac. And many of the people, they're going to, people are going to come from the east and the west. This is Jesus' way of saying people that aren't even Jewish that no one would be on anybody's list. They're going to come from the east and the west, and they're going to sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the great people of the Old Testament. And those of you who think you're, you, who you deserve a place at the table, you yourself will be thrust out. Right? See, you don't get it. Because the law of the new world is grace. The first shall be last because they're smart enough to get out of their own way. Are you friend, hanging on to your pride, hanging on to your, I'll do it, I'm gonna, I'll make it by my own bootstraps, I don't need God, you'll be saying that all the way to a, a life without any hope, 
When God says, I love you, it's all about sheer grace. The end of the world as we know it, the law of the new world is grace. Finally, believing is seeing. It's the meaning of the empty tomb. It's, it's supposed to surprise you when you read these verses that nobody in this passage understands. They have a difficult time coming to the right conclusion about the meaning of the empty tomb. Now, why is that? If it was me, it was you, it was man on the street, you know, uh, you know uh, a Jerusalem a reporter, you know, a lot of people wouldn't get the meaning of the empty tomb because they didn't hang out with Jesus. Nobody would expect people to rise from the dead. But Jesus, the, who's in this passage? Peter, John, and Mary Magdalene. You couldn't get any higher relative to the people who hung out with Jesus and, and, and were considered top disciples. Mary Magdalene's named even more in the scriptures, if you do the count, than the 12 disciples are. Okay? She's an important figure. So they had heard at least three times, maybe more, but if you read the Gospels, at least three times Jesus looked them in the face and said, listen, I want to tell you something, friends, because everything was getting serious. He knew he was getting arrested. I want to tell you something, no metaphor, no clever parable. I don't want there to be any confusion about what I'm going to say to you right now. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed, capital punishment. But listen carefully, I'm going to rise from the dead. So I'm, why, am I, why did Jesus tell them that? Well, of course, he told them that because he wanted them, when it happened, to be ready for it. So guess what? It happens, and what happens here? Mary Magdalene comes. You know what she says? Someone must have stole the Lord's body. What? Remember, that, that not, they, by the way, and then Peter, he just comes and goes, but in Luke's gospel, it says, Peter walked into the tomb, walked out like here, but then Luke adds this. He wondered in himself at that which had happened. He said to himself, what has gone on? What's going on? And John, who eventually gets it, but first he sits outside the tomb, like some of us, you know, in our, you know, engineering mindset, you know. We, oh, well, hmm, I wonder what's going on, right? Listen, we're supposed to see ourselves here. Why did they doubt? Now, I don't really know the reason. If they were told, not only did they doubt, which seems to be, doesn't make sense because Jesus told them. But guess what? They'd already seen resurrection too. Because you might say, well, they doubted, Rob, because it's one thing to say something amazing is going to happen. It's another thing to actually see it, right? And they saw it. But they had already seen at least three people, if you read the Gospels, rise from the dead. The, the, the daughter of Jairus, the, the synagogue leader, uh, a boy from a small town called Nain, a, a young child that was resurrected, and this whole chapter in the Bible, um, John chapter 11, this massive story about the resurrection of Lazarus, all of these three people were there and they saw a guy come out of the tomb. It's almost comical. Resurrection, not only did Jesus say, I'm going to be resurrected, they'd seen it. But here's the difference. The resurrection of those people and Jesus are as different as day and night because Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the, the young boy in Nain, They'd got an extension of years. They came out of the tomb, but 5, 10, 25, 35 years later, they ended up dying of X and Y reason. They got an extension. But see, Jesus Christ didn't just get an extension of life. In his death was the death of death itself. And when they, when they thought about the resurrection of Jesus, they understood this meant something for them, that they too 
if Jesus had conquered not just his death, but had conquered death as a reality, then they could have everlasting life. And I think the reason they doubted is because it was just too good to be true. And that's how I think many of us, maybe the reason we are still in unbelief today. Listen, the gospel's not that difficult. You've heard it, many of you, a hundred times. And you come up with, some of us come up with all these interesting excuses, but I think the real reason some of us don't simply believe is it's just too good to be true. There must be another explanation because we live our lives in the old world mentality. When God has birthed a new world, right be for you. John decides to walk in. He's the first believer. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. The Christian faith is told as simply as possible so that nobody might miss it. John the Apostle is, if we, if we take this record in, in, the, in the logic of the Gospels, he is the first believer. Other people believed in Jesus, of course, as he was walking the earth, and they believed in him. In other words, they thought he was a, a smart man, and they, they followed him. But the first person to believe in the capital B kind of way, in the truest way, you could only believe in and receive salvation once Jesus had rose from the dead. The first person to do that was John. But isn't it interesting how simple it is? Why is it so simple? And get this, John did not see the risen Jesus yet. He believes before he ever saw the body, all he saw was the grave clothes. And John not only didn't see the risen Jesus, but it says in verse 9, they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. There are scriptural proofs in the Old Testament about the resurrection of Jesus, but they didn't know where they were. But I think God's trying to make a message. He says, I want to give you the simplest possible example of belief so that you don't miss it. Right? That you don't miss it. Let me say something about faith. To exercise faith, you need, to be, you need to do something with your mind, but it's more than that. Say, so John stood outside on the calculator, and he was trying to make sense of what he saw. It is an exercise with your mind, but it's also a commitment of your heart, right? You don't have all the facts. John didn't know if, where Jesus was if he was walking the earth. He saw the grave clothes. He couldn't prove in that moment that the Old Testament prophesied the resurrection of Jesus, but he believed. Sometimes you are confronted with something you must outright reject or, or if you accept it, it will demand the changing of your entire worldview. So let me say this, Christian and non-Christian. In some sense, it's not an easy thing to become a Christian. It is easy because all you need to do is believe. But I'm at, it, this isn't about adding something to your resume. This isn't a fine-tuning in your life. This isn't clean up your act. If you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're willing to believe it, even though you can't connect all of the dots, it will demand a changing of your worldview. It's the end of the world as you know it. And you're, you, you enter a stream of a whole different quality of life. You know what Scotty Scheffler said? Very few people will reach the heights that he reached at 25 years old. Very, very few. Very, very few in any, uh, any area of discipline or career. He said, what he said in so many words, listen, 
as awesome as this is, this trophy and all the other ones, they're going to end up on the ash heap of history because this world is already, in a manner of speaking, on its way out. But I'm connected to a greater reality, a greater truth. And and I have an inner motivation that says, hey, if I get an 82, so be it. But I'm connected to a reality that's greater. It's part of the new world, right? John Updike, let me end with these words. Some of you know one of the great writers of the 20th century, one of our great writers, wrote a poem, famous poem. It's called The Seven Stanzas of Easter. But listen carefully. His advice to perhaps us or a skeptical old world mentality for people who say, hmm, resurrection, I don't think so. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. He said, don't, 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 let's, let's stop short of trying to um, minimize, to fit the resurrection into our, our way of thinking, to say, oh, it's just a nice little parable, it's a nice little idea, it's a religious idea, let's fit it into the old world. No, let us not mock God with metaphor. Let us walk through the door, right? That's what faith is. Let us, believing is seeing. The resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb. Why are we talking about it 2,000 years later? Because whether we fully know it or not or believe it or not, it's the end of the world as we know it. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Whoever believes in me, they will be a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And there are people in this room and in your life who are living in the old world, putting their pants on one leg at a time, but they're living and connected to a different world. You can do too if you have eyes to see it. Okay? If you have eyes to see it. So I want to pray. Just close our time in prayer before we're going to just sing a reprise of a song. But every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. I just want to, I want to just end our Easter service with a time of, of prayer, private, of course, in your seat. Let me first just address anybody here in this room or online who'd say, you know, uh, uh, Rob, thanks for those words, and it's not the first time I've heard of it, uh, the, this, re- this story of Jesus rising from the dead. It's, been a, it's, it's a very old story. But Lord, I, I, or, Rob, I've never really um, sensed, I've never fully understood um, what it really means, that the empty tomb is the end of the world as we know it. That although this world makes no sense and it's very confusing and full of all kinds of contradictions, that's not the world that God has birthed in the resurrection of Jesus. And I finally came to, I'm ready to get out of my own way to understand that it's not about what I have done or can do. It's not about trying to one-up somebody else or certainly one uh, impress God, but to come to a place where I realize that the last shall be first. And I am one of those. And if you're open uh, to that, oh, the Bible says this. Why did Mary? Why is Mary on the team? Why is? Why are so many people the, the the boys nobody wanted, the women nobody wanted, the people nobody? Why are they on God's team? Because they finally understood the grace of God for the very first time. And if that's you today, Paul says this in another passage. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, 
and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, okay? Resurrection. If we're willing to believe that, believing is seeing, then you can be saved. Behind those words are not my promise, it's the promise of God. All you need to do, friends, quietly in the privacy of your own heart, is just pray a prayer. God, thank you for sending Jesus on a rescue mission into this broken world, into this old world where the first shall be first and coming to me and giving me the grace of God, the salvation, the forgiveness of sin. I want it. I believe for my life today. If that's you, friend, I would just ask you this. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I just want you to acknowledge before God, if you prayed that prayer, raise your hand. Just stick it up real high. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Stick it up high and then just put it down. Thank you. God sees it. And God answers the heart, the prayer of your heart. And let me say this to non, or I should say to, uh, to Christians in the room like me. See, the, the, the message of Easter is for you too. I said that the resurrection holds the power to live a new kind of life. It's available to you, but it does, it's not automatic because pride is just as much an impasse to life change for you as it is for a non-Christian. And I would imagine there are some of us in this room who've looked at, and you could find some area in our lives, who knows what it is, that we've long since wrote defeated over it. This area will never, I'll never see life here. I'll never see growth here. I'll never see hope here. I've written this off. We've decided to be God in our own lives. But if you're open to it, right? Like Scotty Schiffler said, you know, I don't think I'm ready for it. My wife said, who are you to say you're not ready? If God wants to do a work in your life, do you have the courage? Believing is seeing. And if you'd say, Rob, I know what this is, just between me and God, I know the area that's been under lock and key in my life, but right now I'm, I'm open to it. I'm, I'm praying to God to say, God, I want you to bring a resurrection in this area of my life. Raise your hand right now, Christians, in this room, wherever you are. God knows it, God sees it. Lord, I, you see the answers uh, to these, uh, your people here and online. I pray, Lord, that you would answer these prayers. We love you and we long to experience you at greater levels in our life. In Jesus' name.